There is a new handout today. If you don't have it, it's number 27. Well, actually, there was an old handout 27, but it's got nothing on the back side. So there's a new 27. Look, raise your hand and Luann will give you one. There's a new 27 that's got a 28 on the back side. There's also a number 29, but we don't have it yet. Okay. We're going to go ahead and get started, so let's everybody grab a seat. Sorry, we're running late. It's all good. Okay. Let's pray. God, our Father, we glorify you and we praise you this day. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy, which follows us all the days of our life. We thank you, God, that you have seen fit to draw us to yourself and to save us, God, to call us out of this dark world and bring us into the light of your presence. We thank you. We thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. O Lord, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. That God, he was punished for our sake. And that the chastisement that was due to us fell upon him. We thank you. God, not only do we thank you, but we receive the salvation that you have wrought for us with gladness of heart and with joy. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness. Oh, Lord, we deserve death and you give us eternal life. Open our eyes to see the import of these things. Help us to understand these great realities. God, we thank you for the blessed Holy Spirit whom you have sent to live in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that he is there ever comforting us and strengthening us and reminding us of the truth, upholding our faith and encouraging us to continue to trust you and believe, even though our circumstances are many times very dim. God, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to render in return joyful thanks devoted love. God, we just want to worship you and thank you for your goodness. Pray that this coming year, the year of our Lord 2010, would be a year where we truly glorify and enjoy you. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.
That brings us to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we are now into verses 14 and following. Just want to set the stage for you as we move on here. You remember that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul was describing his ministry to us and what it looked like as he was there and evangelized and established the church in Thessalonica. And you remember that he had only a short period of time, really, to carry out his disciple-making ministry there. In fact, Paul was only there for four short weeks. And in four short weeks, he had established this Thessalonian church. And you recall that they responded in such a way. They received Paul's ministry in such a powerfully convicting way that they actually themselves became imitators of the apostles and went out and spread the gospel to their entire countryside. In fact, the Bible says, in the entire province of Macedonia and Achaia. So this little church that was born in four short weeks of discipleship literally became a powerhouse for the gospel in their whole region of the world. This, of course, was greatly encouraging to Paul, and he spends the whole first chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians commending them and encouraging them that what they have done is a very noble thing, and that God is pleased. And not only that, but these things that they have done are evidence of God's choosing them, and that they are to be reassured in their faith for the way that God has worked in and through their lives. Well, he goes on in chapter 2, and he begins to describe what his ministry was like to them. And he calls them to account of their own remembrance. He says, as you know, we did these things among you. And there he describes how he was like a, a tender mother nursing her babes. But that he was also like a father exhorting and encouraging and imploring them. And he describes how he poured out his life. He says, I I labored and I strove to see Christ formed in you. Well, in these verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we get a description then of what Christian discipleship looks like when it's performed by a master disciple maker. We see what it looks like that a young church is established by an apostle. We kind of get a feel for what ministry looks like in the Christian church based on the things that Paul described about his ministry. Well, in verse 13, he turns from his discussion of what his ministry looked like to how they received it. And he says about them, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. And so he shifts his discussion to what his ministry as a Christian leader looked like to how uh, this commendable response that the Thessalonians had and what it looked like. And he says, basically, you receive the word of God as if it were God's very words. That you received this word as if God himself showed up and spoke to you. You believed what we told you with such conviction that you went out and did what we commanded you. That you responded with joyful hearts. That you responded with much faith even in the midst of much tribulation. You remember the scene, right? 
Paul gets run out of town by an angry mob of Jews. And here are these baby converts left to live in this this uh, den of angry, uh, Christ-rejecting uh, uh, Jews. Well, <clears throat> these Thessalonians did in fact respond by the power of God. They were in fact transformed. And they went out and evangelized their entire province. This is a remarkable thing. However, when Paul begins to write about how they received the word of God and how it worked in them and changed them, he he launches into a discussion about why the Jews are so angry. (laughs) And that's what we get in verses 14 and following. Yeah, that's a number 29 that's going around there. Sorry. That's all right. That's all right. It's all my fault. Uh, That's a number 29 that's going around there. So uh, Carol's going to hand you one. Okay. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul's describing his ministry. He's describing what establishing a church looks like. He's describing Christian leadership. In verse 13, he shifts the discussion to how they receive the word and, and that it was the very words of God, he says, which performs its work in you. He tells him why they responded the way they did. Because it's God's word working powerfully inside their hearts to transform them. Amen? And every true Christian knows this, that, that God's word is powerful. And, and, and every true Christian has gone through a powerful transformation. Amen? What do we call that? Regeneration, thank you. Praise God. You were so quick with that answer. Every true Christian has been powerfully changed, right? From from a power outside of themselves. Amen? We've been changed by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God that we heard. We heard the gospel, right? And God by his spirit effectually worked it in our souls. And it transformed us. It changed us. And so we responded and said, wow, this is as if God himself has spoken to me. Amen? And I remind you of how when you opened the Bible as a new Christian, you started to read, you thought, my God, these words, they're, they're gripping my heart. What is going on here? They used to just be words on a page. Now they have this power. What is going on? Amen? You with me? Well, that's evidence that you've been regenerate, that you've been powerfully changed by God. Now you receive the word of God for what it really is, not the word of men, but what? The word of God. Amen? And this is what the gospel is. It's the very words of God. Well, he describes how they received the word, and then he goes into this little discourse, verses 14 through 16, And he describes why the Jews are so angry, if you will. You remember that Paul came into Thessalonica. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he began to preach in the synagogue from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. And usually this would last, it it might last beyond a week. (laughs) Sometimes you got the boot on the first day. But... In many cases, it would last a week or two or three or more. In some cases, it would go on for many months. There would be a a, a great reception. In the case of Thessalonica, it was only three short trips to the synagogue before the Jews were very angry and they 
um, ran Paul out of town. Right? You remember these Jews were so angry that when Paul left town and went to Berea, which was some 50 miles away, that these Jews from Thessalonica chased him all the way to Berea and ran him out of Berea. You remember that? So what, what happened was these Thessalonian Christians were left behind in this hostile environment in Thessalonica, and they were undergoing much affliction, as it says in chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. They were undergoing much tribulation, suffering persecution at the hands of these religious Jews. Okay, Now, Paul is going to describe to them, if you will, just by way of in writing, what's going on with these Jews and what has happened and what's taken place. And it's a very enlightening passage of Scripture. In fact, there is not another passage in Scripture that is like this. Certainly not in Pauline writing. Paul never really goes to the heart of why um, Jews continue to reject God's word and God's messengers. This is a very enlightening passage of scripture. And so with that, let's learn what Paul has to say. Verse uh, 2, verse 14, he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. For you, brethren, he says, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Here see that they look like the genuine Christians who were first powerfully transformed by the gospel when it was first preached in Jerusalem by the apostles. In the face of severe persecution, they held tenaciously to their faith even if it meant enduring sufferings. Consider the exhortation in the book of Hebrews to the Judean Christians and how remarkably similar their situation was to the Thessalonians. Now, when he says, you became imitators of the churches that are in Judea, he's referring to the Christian churches that are in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Okay, And when he talks about their imitation of those churches... He says, you became imitators of those churches. What was it that they were doing that was imitating these churches in Judea? Answer, they were being persecuted. They became imitators by being persecuted. Now, why were they being persecuted? They were being persecuted because they did what the Judean church did. They opened their mouth and spoke about Jesus, the Christ, and the gospel. And that engendered much hatred from the Jews in Judea, so much so that they persecuted the church severely. You remember in the book of Acts that the gospel spread out of Jerusalem and into the region of Samaria because of the severe persecution on the Christian church in Jerusalem. You recall that? That's how severely they were persecuted. Actually, there were thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, in uh, just after um, the apostles began their ministry. And it was within two decades that there was a tremendous and severe persecution and they were, they were scattered out of Jerusalem and into the other provinces around there. This is when the gospel really began to spread. But think about what Paul's saying. You became imitators of those churches. And how were they imitating them? They were imitating them by speaking the gospel. We know that these Thessalonians were very vocal about their faith. And, and they were doing that, Paul says, in the midst of much affliction. 
So here they are being vocal about their faith, even though they're being opposed by these religious zealots who he calls their, their own countrymen. Okay, So they're imitating the churches that are in Judea by speaking the gospel in much opposition. In other words, they weren't cowering in fear because their opposers were persecuting them. Instead, they were boldly preaching the gospel in spite of it. You with me? That's how they became imitators of the Judean churches. Now, think about this. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is written to who? It's written to Hebrew Christians. Namely, and, and most circumspect, actually there, there are three different recipients of the letter to the book of Hebrews. If you look in the front of your study Bible in the notes on Hebrews, there's some very interesting things, especially a MacArthur study Bible, if you have one, about the recipients of the book. The, 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 the letter was written to specific recipients of whom he describes in great detail there in the front of that. However, the book of Hebrews was written to these Judean Christians to encourage them in their faith. One of the things that is in the content of the book of Hebrews is an encouragement in the midst of affliction and suffering and persecution. Okay, It is in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39 in Hebrews that this is discussed. This is the very thing that Paul is saying that they were imitating the Judean church by doing, if you will, Hebrews 10, 32 and following. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. You remember that the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, you remember what he used to go around doing? Beating up and killing Christians and locking them up in jail. Right? Here we find out that some of that was so severe, their property was being seized. Okay? He, he calls it here a great conflict of sufferings. Right? This was a severe persecution that was going on in the Jerusalem church. And uh, he goes on to try to encourage them. Verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Amen? And so he, here, the, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these Judean Christians, and he's saying, even in the midst of all that great conflict of sufferings and the seizure of your property and being thrown in jail, through all of that, he says, hold on to your faith. There is a great reward in not throwing away your confidence, but holding on even in the midst of that affliction. Okay? Well, it is this kind of thing that the church in Thessalonica was enduring. So what I'm trying to tell you is what we learn from this is that the suffering and the affliction that the Thessalonian church was experiencing was something really severe. It was not just some minor forms of persecution. Okay, We know this furthermore by what it says in First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn with me there and you'll just get a brief... Um, sight of what uh, Paul writes there 
when he writes Second Thessalonians, he has several things in view. But the first thing that he really kind of comes out and says is, um, verse 4, chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Right? Again, he brings up this idea that they're suffering. He calls it all their persecutions and their afflictions. He goes on, This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment. What is? The fact that they're suffering. Right? Why? Well, because they're imitating what the, the original church in Jerusalem went through. Right? You begin to speak the gospel. You begin to preach the gospel. You begin to be powerfully transformed by the gospel. Guess what? <laughs> it engenders much hostility. Right? You act like Jesus and get what, guess what they're going to do? They're going to hang you on a tree, man. You with me? And he was perfect. You act like Jesus perfectly, and guess where you're headed? (laughs) To this we were called, amen? And it's our privilege and our joy, is it not? But nevertheless, he writes with these Thessalonians, this is plain indication of God's righteous judgment, verse 5, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And here's where Paul launches off into this discourse about how Jesus is going to return in blazing fire with all of his powerful angels and he is going to bring judgment on the ungodly and wicked world who is persecuting them. God is going to pour out tribulation on them who cause you to suffer. Right? Well, here's the point. The point is is that when Paul says you imitated these churches in Judea, and the, and the sufferings that you're facing, let me tell you, that was something really severe. Because the Christians in Judea, man, they, you understand, they were in the heart of Judaism. Not only are they in the heart of Judaism, but they're telling the Jews that the Jewish system is fulfilled by this man, the Lord Jesus, whom they killed. You recall as you read through Acts, and these apostles keep testifying before the Sanhedrin, they keep bringing up this issue. You killed the Lord Jesus. You killed your own Messiah. You know, everything that the Jews stand for, the Christians are saying to them, you're guilty of the bloodshed of the Messiah. You understand how severe, if, you don't, if you're a Jew and you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, more uh, heart penetrating words could not be spoken to you. We've killed our own Messiah. What are you trying to tell us, right? Not only this, but these Christians, man, these guys are relentless. They really want us to be saved. <laughs> So here are these Christians motivated with loving compassion, right? And here are these Jews saying, what in the world are you trying to say, right? So you understand this Judean church is right in the hot spot of this whole thing, right? Not only that, they're alive at the time of the very men who killed Jesus. They're the very councils and rulers and governors who were guilty of this very thing, right? You understand what they did? They did like they did to Stephen. Right? They drug Stephen in there, and he said, you people are always resisting God. Right? He didn't even get his sermon done, and they drug him out in the street and stoned him. That's the kind of persecution they were enduring. Let me tell you, they were killing the apostles. They killed James. Right? Let me tell you, it was a hostile environment in the early church. And so when Paul says, you Thessalonians, 
became imitators of the Judean church in their suffering, what he's trying to say is, this is a very severe persecution, and you are to be commended for standing firm in your faith during this time. In fact, the persecution did get so severe in in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the early church, that they were literally scattered. Um, they, they, many of them had to flee for their lives. You remember that it says about Paul, he was going to these other towns to drag off Christians from there because they had fleed up there, right? And as a matter of fact, when he got saved on the road to Damascus, where was he headed? You recall? To do what? Kill Christians. He was on his way. Actually, I think it says he was there to to uh, arrest some of them and drag, forget the exact wording. But nevertheless, right, he was out on one of his persecuting missions. <laughs> he was like those Jews who chased Paul from Thessalonica all the way to Berea. He was like that. He was going to Damascus to find them Christians. Apparently he ran out of Christians in Judea or something. I don't know. You with me? This was a severe, severe thing. Family, I'm telling you, we don't have a clue. But this, we, we live in America. Man, I can go stand out here on a soapbox on the street corner and tell everybody and their brother they're going to hell. Right? I might get a tomato or two. Right? But it ain't, it ain't nothing like people dragging me off to jail. And then my family doesn't have anybody to win bread. You with me? It isn't like somebody beating my door down and hauling off my property. Okay? So when we understand what these Thessalonians were going through, we begin to understand how firm their faith really is and how commendable this really is. I know it's something that's hard for us to grasp. We can't really even see ourselves in that situation. However, I would like to say to you that as the environment in American culture becomes increasingly violent toward Christianity, especially evangelical Christians who open their mouth and preach the gospel, Right? I do believe it will not be very long when we will begin to understand very clearly what these Thessalonians were enduring. Are you with me? And if that's true, right, we better learn our lesson while we're here in this text. Right? We better understand that when that day comes, it's a day for us to stand. It's a day for us not to throw away our confidence because it has a great reward. And to remember the one in whom we have believed. Amen? Nevertheless, these Thessalonians became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. They were willing, no matter the cost, to hold on to their faith, even if they were to face severe persecution for it. They, just like the Jerusalem church, instead of being stamped out by religious persecution, thrived in the midst of it. This has long been the case in point, that whenever the church is persecuted, it thrives and spreads in strong degree. So came that famous quote from Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Have you ever heard that? What it means is when you start killing Christians for their faith, they really get bold. Amen? Praise God for that. Praise God that we have grace to stand in the hour of trial. Amen? It's he who sustains us in our faith, family. We don't do that on our own. Amen? We do it by faith. We do it by trust. And that power comes from God. He says, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, 
Here we learn for sure that the Thessalonians have certainly been persecuted in no small way, but instead you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. Here Paul states that they faced the same sufferings in Macedonia, even as the Jerusalem church did from the Jews. The suffering of the churches of Judea was severe from the record of Acts and of the passage in Hebrews we just looked at. But notice here that this suffering came from your own countrymen, whereas theirs was from the Jews. See here the hostility of both Jews and Gentiles to the gospel. We know from the account in Acts 17 that their persecutors were both Jew and Gentiles, who were also residents of Thessalonica. But consider for what reason mankind should be so hostile to the good news of salvation and eternal life. Think about it. What is it that's in the gospel message that should cause both Jew and Gentile to be hostile? Well, it is. We, we know what it is. But if you will, the, the center, the core of the message is the message of their benefit, of their blessing, of their salvation, of God's promised blessing for those who would receive. Joe? It's a call to repentance. Okay? So here's the deal, family. If we, like many modern megachurches, drain the gospel of its power by removing ideas and concepts of repentance and a bloody cross and a suffering sacrifice, and, and we remove the, the drain the gospel of its power by refusing to tell men that there is an angry God in heaven who is so angry about sin that he's going to throw them in hell, which is in fact the entire exact truth. Are you with me? If we remove the gospel of those elements, what is left to engender any hostility? So here's what we do. We want to make people comfortable, right? So God forbid we should try and offend them in any way, right? So here's what we'll do. We won't tell them that they have to repent, right? We won't tell them that Jesus had to die and shed his blood for their sins. We won't tell them that God had to pour out his wrath on Jesus the Savior, right? Well, you know, God loves you, and he has a plan for your life, right? Well, guess what? If you don't trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, God's love is soon going to turn to justice. And when it gets poured out, let me tell you, it ain't going to look nothing like love. So it's true that those who believe the gospel and respond to God's love do by that means enter into the love and blessing of God. But it's also true that if they spend the rest of their life rejecting that, then they are pushing themselves further and further outside of the love of God and right into the justice of God. Are you with me? Or should I say they already abide there? They're already children of wrath. So, so here's my point. When the original church goes out and preaches the gospel, what happens? The whole world is hostile. They're angry. They beat them up. They take their stuff. They run them out of town. Okay, these Christians weren't trying to make the hearers of their message comfortable on a warm, fuzzy pew. You understand what I'm trying to tell you? Sorry, I'm looking for ways to articulate this. The gospel is an offense because it calls men to repentance over their sin. And 
it tells them that the most powerful being in all of the universe is going to judge them and condemn them if they don't come to him on his terms and in the way that he commands that they come. You understand? We have to surrender to the will of a holy God. We have to surrender under the mighty hand of God and humble ourselves in order to be saved. Amen? And so this is why we can't remove the gospel of these offensive uh, elements. Family, those are the core issue in the gospel. Those are the very things we need to say. Are you with me? And that's why we all, if you will, struggle to share the gospel with others because we're afraid we're going to offend them. Tell me who here is not afraid of offending people you share the gospel with. Good night. I'm a gospel preacher, man. I'm afraid all the time when I tell people I'm going to offend them. Why? Because that's the innate sinful nature that I have. I have this fear of men. And Jesus says, don't fear them that could kill the body. Fear him. Right? You understand what I'm trying to say? Why are we afraid? Why don't we want to tell people about Christ? Well, because we got to deal with the sin issue. we got to tell them that the things that they're doing are offending a holy God who's going to judge them. And that's why Christ had to come and die. The whole central core message of the gospel is Jesus is suffering, dying, and bleeding on the tree for their sins. Somehow we've got to communicate that to them if they're going to be saved, which deals principally with their own wicked sins. Sins, by the way, which they love. (laughs) Are you with me? Therefore, I have this question. If people understood what we were trying to say in the gospel, really we're giving them the most loving, gracious message we could ever possibly give them. Why in the world would anybody want to turn down a way to be rescued from the hands of an angry God? Right. She says they're no longer in control of their life. They're holding on to their autonomy, right? They want to be the captain of their own ship, right? And you're telling them, no, you got to give the reins over to Jesus. He's the Lord. Amen? Well, here when we read about what's happening to these Thessalonians, we see the hostility of both Jews and Gentiles to the gospel. So I'm asking this question, why should men so vehemently oppose that which can save their souls from death and fill them with glorious peace and joy? You with me? It's a matter of understanding. Remember, salvation is a revelatory thing. They have to come to a knowledge of the state that they're in and, and by the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, right, come to see that desperate state and receive God's provision, which can then reconcile them to God and fill them with the glorious peace and joy that we have. Amen? And this is kind of what the evangelization process looks like. We're trying to convince people of these eternal realities, right? And we have this barrier of darkness that overshadows their eyes. And so we try to speak the truth so that the truth can come through, the light of God's truth can come through and penetrate into that darkness and open up the eyes of their understanding so that they can believe and be saved. Amen? Well, I'm asking, why would men so vehemently oppose such a glorious message? That is, in fact, true, right? Well, we know why. But see here the desperate state uh, and sinful rebellion 
and darkness that all unregenerate people are in. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, they are under the dominion of darkness and zealously reject the light which can lead them to freedom. They oppose the very medicine that can cure their dreadful disease. Are you with me? You ever met somebody who doesn't want to take their medicine? You ever met somebody who doesn't want to take their medicine for their disease, which is terminal? It's a sorry state of affairs, let me tell you. It's a sorry state of affairs. But this is, in fact, the state that every single man and woman who has ever lived is in. They are in the darkness of sin. They are, as the Bible says, dead in their transgressions and sins. Okay? The gospel is the only way they can be given freedom from eternal death and separation from God. The gospel is the only medicine that can cure that situation that every man and woman is in. Are you with me? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No one comes to the Father but through him. Amen? He writes, he he speaks about this, Jesus does in John chapter 3. He says, this is the judgment. You remember in verses 16 through 18, Jesus is saying, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? I mean, it's this simple. God sent his son to save the world. Whoever believes can have everlasting life. You with me? Jesus then speaks of this sad reality here in verse 19. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know, here's this thing. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus came into the world to save the world, but men love their sin more than they love the truth and more than they love Jesus and more than they love the God who gives them life. That's a tough predicament to be in. Okay? Now, family, when we begin to preach the gospel to people, it engenders hostility. Okay? Let me tell you, if your gospel is not offending anybody, you've got the wrong gospel. I I, I really want you to think about that. I want you to think seriously about it. When these Christians in Judea and these Christians in Thessalonica go out and do what the apostles told them to do and say the things the apostles told them to say, you know what happened? They got beat up. They got killed. They got the property taken away. And they were in a heap of trouble. And I I mean this sincerely, okay? Think about your gospel. Does it engender the hostility of anyone? You know, or or what are you telling people? You know, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a good guy Christian. You should be one too. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I, I don't know. But but my, my point is, is that if you want to see another individual human being be saved, listen. They have to understand that their 
personal sins have offended a holy God who is going to pour out his judgment and wrath on their head unless they believe in and trust in a dead Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. Are you understand what I'm trying to say? That thing has to happen for any specific individual who is going to be saved, which means you have to bring them to an understanding of the state that they're in and the message of the gospel. You can't do it any other way. People don't get saved by believing that God has a good plan for their life. That, that's part of the gospel, and it's entirely true. If they trust the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you, God's designs are only good for them. For the rest of their life, God will work every single thing together for their good. <laughs> Even the suffering, all the bad things, God's going to work them for their good. He'll have only good designs for every single person that believes that Jesus is the Christ who died personally for their own personal sins. Unless they believe that message, family, they cannot be saved. You understand? I think I'm getting through. And, and let me tell you, I don't mean to be arrogant, okay? I need to hear this myself. I struggle just like you do with articulating the gospel to people. You know why? Because it engenders hostility and people don't want to hear it. Okay? It's not a popular thing. I know. We probably have more fun if we were at the Toastmasters Club than talking about this issue. <laughs> but this ain't the Toastmasters Club. And people are dying and going to hell. And you and I, we have the words of life. Amen? <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I would love to see our church be a church where people in other places are writing and say, we have no need for anyone to tell us of your faith because we know the gospel has sounded forth from you in that entire city of Albuquerque and that state of New Mexico. Are you with me? I, 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 I read about these Christians and I'm saying, Lord, these are our model. These are our example. What are we doing? What does our faith look like? What is it producing? Are you with me? I don't know about you, but I'm personally convicted by that. And I'm praying that God will turn me in to a zealous gospel minister in a year to come. Amen? And in as many years to come until he returns. I don't know about you, but I want to hear those words, well done, now good and faithful servant. Amen? Verse 15, he says of these um, Jews, even as they did the Jews, he says, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. <clears throat> well, here it is. He's bringing up this killed the Lord Jesus thing again. <laughs> you know, here's this thing. Paul's on these apostolic journeys. <laughs> he goes into the synagogue. You know what he's got to tell him? <laughs> You people killed your own Messiah. Unbelievable that he survived as many years as he did. Are you with me? I mean, this was a tough ministry, man. As this is what he's got to tell him. You know, if he goes into the synagogue and he says, hey, let's look in Isaiah. Hey, look, Jesus is the Christ. <laughs> right? Let's look in Jeremiah. Jesus is the Christ. Let's look in the minor prophets. Jesus is the Christ. Well, as soon as they believe that, guess what? 
Now they've got to understand that their system of Judaism is the very system that put him to death and is the very system that is even at that time persecuting the true people of God, the true messengers of God, who God keeps sending the Jews, these messengers, and guess what they keep doing? They keep killing them. All the way back to Cain and Abel. Religious people have killed God's righteous people all the way back since there was a man on the earth. You understand? The controversy between Cain and Abel was a religious one. Jesus calls him a prophet. Abel, that is. In Matthew 23. But the fact of the matter is that this is what's happening. Paul's showing up in these synagogues and he's telling the Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God. He's the long-promised son of David, king of Israel, who's come to save his people and they killed him. Right? A fact of which alone they would say, oh, that's silly. The Messiah can't be killed. He's going to rule the world. You know, they got all these religious reasons why Jesus can't be the Christ. Nevertheless, they carried this act out. Not only did they kill the prophets, but they killed the prophet when he finally came. They killed the prophet that came from heaven. And uh, this was a severe, severe circumstance. I I don't want to go on here. I want to stop here because I have a lot to say about the Jews and... uh, who they are, and who they even are today. And uh, I'll save that for next week. Does anybody have any questions, or is there anything I can clarify? Or do you have any questions about where we're headed or what's going on? I realize that now we're still in Chapter 2. It's already January. So you might be wondering, what in the world is this guy going to do? We were supposed to study First and Second Thessalonians this year. Well... We're just going to press on through the word, and if we get to the summer break, guess what? We'll have a summer break. Amen. Okay? So I've gotten over my insecurities about how long it's going to take. But I, but I promise when we finally get to the eschatology, you'll, you'll be on the edge of your chair because the Bible says things that are, if, if it wasn't God's word, we would, we would never believe them. Amen? Any questions? Okay, let's pray. God, our Father, we we praise you that we have the privilege to be your royal priests. That we Christians have the privilege to be a holy nation that belongs to you and who bear the message of your saving grace. And Lord, who is equal to the task of carrying a hostile message to people, delivering it with grace and love. How can we do such a thing? Lest you empower us. Lest you give us grace and strength. Lest you give us patience and a pastoral heart of compassion with those to whom we speak. So Lord, I pray for that. I pray that us Christians would be bold that we would be clear in our presentation of the gospel truth 
And I pray that you would give us compassion and grace and patience and gentleness to deliver it to others who so desperately need it. God, not only that, I pray for fruit. I pray that we people within the hearing of my voice would see others be saved this year. God, I pray that that we would be committed to the gospel and that, Father, that you would respond in glorious power and change people. God, help us to see how the gospel changes lives. Help us to see, God, how it saves people from their sins and turns them into worshipers. Father, may we please partake in this ministry. Help us, I pray. God, help us. We honor you and we bless you. We honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.